as we come to uh, look at the word of God, uh, let's ask his help. Gracious Lord, we bless you for your word. And uh, our task is to stand under it, see what it tells us. And to that end, we ask for illumination, we ask for understanding, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit that we, uh, we learn and grow in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're visiting, we've been on a journey through 1 Timothy and we've come to various issues which we pause for a while on. At the moment, we're pausing on the issue of the roles of men and women. And 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, we came across what's potentially a provocative statement from the Apostle Paul. And he says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And so last week we considered briefly the forces and the movements today in our society which have really strong opinions about this, about the roles of men and women. And we went back to the book of Genesis for more information on this potentially volatile issue. We went back to a time before cultures had come along and said this is what men should be doing in our culture, this is what women should be doing. And we considered from that origin how men and women were both created in the image of God. They were created equal in importance and equal in personhood and that both biological genders reflected unique and important aspects of the God after whom they were fashioned. We saw that both men and women are filled with the same Holy Spirit. We saw the interdependence of men and women and the harmonious relationship that they were created to have and we were reminded of the unique and the high position which Christianity has granted to women in contrast to so many other ideologies, philosophies and cultures. And so having considered the points of equality between men and women, now we come to consider this morning the points, some of the points of difference between them. Now we're not going to cover the whole uh, topic, that would be, we're here for a long time, but we're going to look at something which hopefully all hangs together. So being made in the image of, you know, which being a reflection in what, of something, something greater, our starting point in all this is the God whom we're meant to reflect, who in some ways we are a copy of. And so when you look into God and you look into the Trinity, you can see that there there's an equality of importance, there's an equality of personhood, there's an equality of deity. This has been there for all eternity and will continue for all eternity but there are differences in roles between those members of the trinity you see god the father has always been the father and is always always related to the son as a father relates to his son and though all three members of the trinity are equal in power and in all other attributes the father has a greater authority he has a leadership role amongst all the members of the Trinity that the Son and the Holy Spirit don't have. And we see that in creation, when he created the world, the Father speaks and he initiates, but the work of creation is carried out through the Son, the Logos. And then it's sustained by the continuing presence of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to redemption, the Father sends his Son into the world 
But the Son comes, and the Son is obedient to the Father and dies to pay for our sins. We know these things. And then after the Son has gone into, into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. As we think about that, we realise the Father didn't come to die for our sins, nor did the, neither did the Holy Spirit. The Father was not poured out on the church at Pentecost in New Covenant power, and neither was the Son. So because each member of the Trinity has distinct roles and functions, and that means there is no inconsistency between having a different role and being equally important. Equally important people share the jobs around. They don't get miffed if they're told to do something by someone who's just doing his job, fulfilling his role. They're happy to focus on their role and their tasks so that the whole team functions better. So if humans are to reflect the character of God, we would expect to share roles like God does. We would expect there would be differences and they would influence the roles we take up and the jobs we do. So there's a plain description of those differences for us in relationships, particularly husband and wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I want you to understand, says Paul, that the head of every man is Christ. I mean, this is our starting point. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So just as the Father has authority over the Son, although the two are equal in deity, so in a marriage, the husband has authority over the wife, though they're equal in personhood. In this case, the man's role is like God the Father's role, and the woman's role is parallel to God the Son, equally important but different roles. Now, it goes without saying that there is friction between men and women. And a, and a common question is, whether it all came about due to the fall of man, whether it was due just to sin. And so we have to ask this question, why, what was it like in the Garden of Eden before it all messed up? Were the distinctions between male and female roles only introduced as part of a punishment, as a result of sin? So when God told Eve in Genesis 3, 6, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Was that the time when Eve began to be subject to Adam's authority? And certainly, if you uh, go down the equality viewpoint, if differences in authority were introduced only after there was sin in the world, you'd be able to dismiss this role thing because that's not the way it was meant to be. But what does the scripture say? Adam was created first. And then Eve. Now this being created first, and then there's a time gap, and then Eve's created, that suggests a leadership role in the family. Didn't happen with any other part. Didn't happen with what, when he made the animals. He didn't do first the men and then the women of the animals. He did them all together. And this idea of the creation of Adam first, that's reflected in the Old Testament in something called primogenitor. The idea that the firstborn 
in any generation in a human family has leadership in that family for that generation. This, this rite of primogenitor, it's assumed throughout the Old Testament, does at times get tampered with uh, because of God's special purposes that got sold or otherwise transferred to a younger person with the Jacob and Esau story. And then that story of Perez and Zerah where a hand comes out first, gets a scarlet ribbon on it and goes back in, the other one comes, so messes there. Reuben, he missed out on his being in, in the genealogies because he slept with his dad's concubine. And if you want to see this spelled out a little bit more, you could go to Deuteronomy 21, verse 15 to 17. It spells out there what are the, result, the rights of the firstborn. And so it's sometimes called the birthright belongs to the firstborn son and it's his unless there are special circumstances. So it seems clear that there was a purpose in creating Adam first and this purpose shows an ongoing distinction in the roles that God has given to men and women. The verse after what we started with today from 1 Timothy 2 says in verse 13 for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and that's primogeniture. And in context of verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. So primogeniture is used as a reason for restricting just some distinct governing and teaching roles in the church to men. Other aspect is this word helper. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. And I think strong, independent islands men need to hear Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, some guys like to have that quiet. You know, they're a bit like, you know, ever see the, hear the um, musical My Fair Lady? There's a song about, I'm just an ordinary man. And I, it's a great line. I prefer the silence of an undiscovered tomb. And whilst many of you guys prefer that peace and quiet, after a while they discovered the peace and quiet is of an undiscovered tomb. <laughs> There's no life there. It gets a bit lonely. So it is good to have a helper, though not always peaceful. And Eve, remember, was created to be the ideal helper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So we're not saying that women have lesser importance, it's just they have different roles. And there's been quite a lot written about that word helper. Some point out that the word helper is often used in the Old Testament of somebody who's actually greater or more powerful than the one who's being helped. God himself is called a helper who helps his people. Now think about this. A helper does... But helper does not, just by helping, remove the responsibility for the task which the other person has. So I might fix a bike for a kid, but it doesn't take over the kid's responsibility to look after his bike. I'm not taking that over from him. And so superiors may help inferiors. The strong may help the weak. Gods may help humans. 
But in the act, when they're actually helping, they're taking a, an inferior or, or a subjecting role to themselves. They're taking a secondary position when they help. And their help may be necessary, their help may be crucial, but they are assisting in a task which ultimately is somebody else's responsibility. They're not actually doing the task themselves. They're not even in cooperation. So there's different language for that. Being a helper is not a Hebrew way of being an equal. Adam named Eve. I was intrigued about this concept of naming for years. What's the substance? All you're doing is saying a name or two, saying a couple of words. Where's the power? Where's the substance in that? Well, think about this. Any of us could say, well, look, I don't like the name Maddox. I think I'm going to rename Maddox Street to CB Street. <laughs> See, this great idea. <laughs> but we don't have the authority to rename the street, do we? So, sorry, Jeff. <laughs> Can't do it. We don't have the authority. So, there, so Adam had God-given authority behind his job of naming the animal kingdom. And we see that authority to name things continues through the Old Testament. God himself gives people new names. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. And parents had the right to name their children. And when you think about the naming, when Adam did the naming of the animals, he also took into account their characteristics, their functions, and he took them into consideration. And so when he comes now to name Eve, he does the same thing. He says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The person who names is performing a leadership role here. And that was before the fall, where she is called woman. And it's also true after the fall, in chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Consider this. God named the human race man, not woman. And it's worth considering at this point whether it's appropriate to use the word man as a, a general term for this group of both men and women. And, and many people consider that's very insensitive. They maintain we should only use gender-neutral gender terms such as humanity or humankind, human beings or persons to refer to the human race. Well, let's see what Scripture tells us. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. And that word man, Hebrew term translated man, here actually literally is Adam. The same word as the name of Adam. It's used eight times in Genesis 2, to refer to the man in distinction to the woman, for example, in 2.2, and the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man, so there's distinction there. But he named the whole lot man. So the practice of using the same term to refer either to a male human being or to the whole human race, it actually started with God himself. Now, we're all for sensitivity between the sexes and we may not always want to refer to the whole human race as man. 
But the fact that God chose to name the entire race as man should be considered a good and appropriate thing because God is good. And it's not offensive to do so unless you have a problem with God himself. And I wonder whether most of the problems with who's in charge here come down to a problem with God. Well, consider what the scripture says about that. Scripture says we're all created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone is called by my name whom I created for my glory. I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Go to the New Testament to Ephesians 1 verse 11 to 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put in our hope in Christ might be for the praise of whose glory? His glory. That's very much different. We go down the shops, we buy stuff for our purposes. Here is something, us being made for his glory. And people who have a problem with God don't accept that. They don't accept that according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, we are commanded to do all to the glory of God. So many don't accept that there is a creator. And where does that leave them? They're left with no option but to be their own creator, their own manager. And being the manager, of course, then comes with management problems because then you start to get worried because you want to have enough power to manage well and you get worried about who's in charge because uh, they can uh, affect what's happening for you and you can feel worried about whether you're significant enough or important enough or powerful enough to be in control of your life. So rather than throw out God and then just descend to being a chicken scratching out a miserable life competing for grain on the chicken coop floor, let's lift our vision and consider a few things. You see, think about us being created. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed fellowship with other persons. He's always had perfect love. He's always had fellowship with the other members of Trinity for eternity. God didn't need us for any reason. Nevertheless, what did he do? He created us for his own glory, which guarantees that our lives are significant. Being created for God's glory guarantees that we're significant. The fact that he didn't need to create us is not a reason to think we're not important. In fact, it says we are important because he wanted to create us. It was a choice, a free choice. He wanted to have people with whom he could have a relationship for eternity. And for me, that's the ultimate definition of genuine importance and significance in your life. Because we are truly important to God for eternity. What greater measure of importance or significance could you want? And this male and female this year, well, that's sort of, in the light of that, it's sort of irrelevant. Another aspect about what's going on here is that the serpent came first to Eve. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, But Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Satan, you know, he's rebelled against God and he's off and he's got a vendetta and what's he going to do? He's going to distort, he's going to undermine everything that God's planned. 
and everything created is good. And so what does he do? He says, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to the other way. I'm going to turn the leadership roles around. I'm going to go to the woman first instead of the man. And we saw that in Genesis 3, verses 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to the woman, he went round the other way. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And so there you see Satan trying to undermine what God's been doing because God has been speaking to the man to this point. Let's see, God spoke first to Adam after the fall. In Genesis 3 verse 8 and 9, see this. Then the man and the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And the conversation that follows there is God speaking to Adam because he was the leader of the family. He was the one called into account for what happened in the family. And notice that although this is after the first sin has occurred, it is still before God tells Eve in Genesis 3.16 that he shall rule over you. So it means that Adam is still the head before the fall. And so that means that Adam, not Eve, represents the human race. Even though Eve sinned first, we're counted as sinful because of Adam's sin, not because of Eve's sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, In Adam all die. And in Romans, many died through one man's trespass. And that shows us that God had given Adam headship or leadership with respect to the human race, a role that he didn't give to Eve. And that meant that Adam as the leader had to accept the responsibility for what went wrong. So the curse brought about a distortion of previous roles. It didn't introduce anything new. And the punishments that God gave to Adam and Eve after they had sinned didn't introduce any new roles or functions. Instead, pain and distortion was introduced into the functions they already had. So Adam would still have the responsibility for tilling the ground and raising crops, but the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles and rain in the middle of harvest. And in the sweat of his face, he would eat bread. And what farmer doesn't know about weeds and the physical effort of getting a crop in and harvested successfully and the problems to overcome? And similarly, he would still have the responsibility of bearing children, but in pain you shall bring forth children. And what mum doesn't sigh wistfully at the thought that childbirth could have been painless if Adam and Eve hadn't strayed? Oh, a tantalising thought. And then God also introduced pain and conflict into the previous, previously harmonic relationship between Adam and Eve. And God said to Eve, he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Contrary. Your desire. What is this Hebrew word for desire here? Teshukor. And it actually, translators are coming to understand that it means a hostile disposition. And means something like a desire to conquer. 
It implies that Eve would have a wrongful desire to usurp authority over her husband. Does that speak to anything you see in the world today? That understanding of the word desire is in several translations, the ESV, the NLT, the NET, which may or may not mean anything to you. But it shows God introducing or acknowledging that now there's going to be conflict in the relationship between Adam and Eve and there's going to be desire on Eve's part to rebel against Adam's authority. So turning to Adam and God telling Eve that, hey, he shall rule over you, the word rule needs to be looked at next. That's in Hebrew, morshal, and it's a strong term, a strong word for this ruling over, and it's usually the one used of monarchical governments, and that's the word used of the king will rule over you. And that's not about participatory government, it's about a king being the king. And there's nuances in there of dictatorship or absolute uncaring use of authority rather than a considerate and a thoughtful rule. And it suggests harshness rather than kindness. So there's a sense here is that Adam, after the fall, is going to misuse his authority by ruling harshly over his wife. Again, introducing pain and conflict into a relationship that before this had been harmonious. So it's not that Adam had no authority before the fall, it's simply that he will misuse it after the fall. That's the curse. It distorts both Adam's humble, considerate leadership and it distorts Eve's intelligent and willing submission to the leadership which existed before the fall and which was perfectly harmonious. So what happens when Jesus comes along and redeems us? Redemption in Christ its going to reaffirm what God set up in the beginning. When you, have, when you become a, a Christian, you have a chance of going back to the way it was originally created to be because Jesus has broken the curse of sin. The New Testament is an undoing of the painful aspects of the relationship which resulted from the sin and curse. And we would expect that in Christ, Redemption would encourage wives not to rebel against their husband's authority and would encourage husbands not to use their authority harshly. And that's what we find in Colossians. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord's. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So if it was sinful for wives to be subject to their husband's authority, Peter and Paul would have said, hey, uh, don't, don't do it. But... After redemption of Jesus, after all, the aim of redemption, sorry, of Jesus' coming was to break the results of sin and the fall in every way. 1 John 3 verse 8 just confirms that. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so this commands about marriage not perpetuating any element of a curse or any sinful behaviour patterns. Instead, they are reaffirming the order and the distinction of roles that were there from the very beginning of God's good creation. And it means that as we grow in Christ, as we, uh, we should be growing to delight in and rejoice in how he set it up, in the wisely created differences in roles which God has ordained within the human family. Because we understand God planned it that way. And so it's beautiful and right because God only does good and right things. And we can rejoice more and more in what God's done. And we can embrace gladly the roles that he's given us. Because there is an eternal beauty and dignity and rightness 
in the different roles we've seen in both the Trinity and the human family. There's no one side better than the other side. There's no one side more important or less important. And when it's done rightly, it's a joy. So let's just wrap it up. Wars between the sexes are a result of the curse. Husbands, they have been guilty of acting selfishly and harshly in domineering and abusive and cruel ways. They have been wrong. Wives have been rebellious, resentful of their husband's leadership. They have been contentious and competed vigorously against their husbands. They have been wrong. Men have distorted the biblical pattern by either being aggressive or just passive and lazy. The passive man has failed to take initiative in the family and has been a wimp. He's been so considerate about having a happy wife that he allows her to make all the decisions and even agrees when she wants him to do something wrong. He's been increasingly absent physically and emotionally and occupying himself just with other stuff. But women have also become aggressive or passive. The passive ones, they contribute nothing to the decision-making process of a family. They're unwilling to speak words of correction even when it's obvious something needs to be said. So submission to authority does not mean being entirely passive and agreeing with everything. A wife can certainly be subject to the authority of a husband and still participate fully in the decision-making process of the family. Husbands on their side, they, in, in wanting to provide the good leadership that Adam had before the fall and following the example within the Godhead, they should be aiming for loving and considerate and thoughtful leadership of their families. The wives... They should be aiming for active, intelligent, joyful submission to their husband's authority. What's it look like when it works well? The preacher-teacher John Piper likens a successful relationship to a dance, you know? When they're da ballroom dancing, one person's the leader, the other's the follower, and when they work together, it's a dynamic and a wonderful display of coordination and flexibility and beauty. Picture that comes to me is like that of going driving in the car. I've just been off to Perth. Let me ask you this question How many steering wheels are there in a car? Only one can drive. But as I know, driving in the increasingly complicated city goes a lot easier if there's two one helping with the navigating, the where we're going, the talking it through, the other driving. Different roles, none, no more important than the other, but a beautiful thing to get there together. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I pray that you'd uh, allow us to uh, hear what you want us to hear from your word. The beauty of the way you are able to relate and have related for eternity and will relate for eternity is our inspiration, it's our model. And we seek to be good copies of you. And thank you for what you've done to create us. Your desire to have a relationship with us for eternity. Wow, that's a privilege. So we give you glory for that and we rejoice in, in your love that's done that. You are amazing. Amen. <laughs>